week, the vaccine showed to be more than 90% effective in preventing COVID-19. 70.4% effective when you combine those two. Results of the study are not as we hoped. And that was from the AstraZeneca COVID-19 vaccine and blood clots. Last Johnson week, & Johnson out with the findings of its vaccine, which is just a single dose. It's been hailed as a potential UK game changer in the fight against have a new tool to fight COVID-19, Moderna's newly authorized bivalent vaccine. The shot targets both the original virus plus the Omicron BA1 variant that was first... If you've been following the story of how to vaccinate the world over the last few years, you'd be forgiven for occasionally getting lost in the tumult of names of pharma companies, the endless numbers and the constant news cycle. Current data suggests that a course of the COVID-19 vaccine may only stop around 1 in 20 infections. But it does reduce intensive care admissions and deaths by 7 to 10 times. Long COVID risks are also cut in half. But does all this data have an impact on how many people actually choose to get vaccinated? Why are there around 50 million adults still not vaccinated in America and 3 million in the UK? This is In Conversation from Medical News Today. I'm Dr. Hilary Geit. Regular listeners will know this podcast is all about conversations, not just between me, our correspondents and experts, but between them as well. Today, we'll be exploring vaccine hesitancy and asking what the underlying causes might be. First up, some common themes have emerged in the media during the pandemic to explain why vaccine hesitancy exists and how to work with it. For example, is it a misunderstanding of the science? How is the state planning to fight that vaccine hesitancy we're starting to hear about? The plan is very straightforward and that's through educational efforts. Um, We know that these vaccines are safe, trusted and effective. Or is this an issue of a few bad apples on social media? As our reporter, Aaron Kemchandani, will discuss on this podcast. There was an interesting study done by the Center for Countering uh, Digital Hate, or the CCDH, that found that the majority of misinformation across social media came from 12 people, which is insane. Or perhaps it's something deeper, the death of the expert and mistrust in our institutions. There's a mistrust of um, the societal structures that we have um, and really thinking, um, am I seen, am I recognised, am I valued and will I be advocated for? To break all this down, joining me in conversation are... My name is Maya Goldenberg. I'm Professor of Philosophy at the University of Guelph in Canada. I'm also author of the book, Vaccine Hesitancy, Public Trust, Expertise, and the War on Science. Hi, I'm Maria Kohut. I am the Features Editor at Medical News Today. I am joining you today from a newly COVID-infected household. You're feeling all right, though. I'll survive. Okay. Hi, uh, my name is Aaron Kemchandani. I'm a science journalist, and I've studied vaccine hesitancy and miscommunication. I come from Hong Kong and I'm currently studying at Imperial College London. Professor Maya Goldenberg, Maria Kahoot, Aaron Kemchandani. Welcome. Nice to be here. Thank you. Thank you for coming. Thank you. 
Let's start now with a personal account of vaccine hesitancy in Hong Kong, which is where Aaron spent most of the pandemic. So Aaron, tell us about your experience of vaccine hesitancy. Yeah, so I was in Hong Kong uh, at the start of the pandemic in 2020 and as well as uh, 2021, and the vaccine uptake rate was actually quite low um, compared to other countries like the UK and the US, for example. And most of this stemmed from a severed relationship between the public and the government, because in 2020 uh, in Hong Kong, we saw large scale protests fighting for democracy and more rights because the government was slowly eroding the the rights that citizens had been accustomed to. And as a result of that, people distrusted any regime that was sanctioned by the government, which included lockdowns, testing and vaccines. And to couple with that, we also had very, very low case numbers. Most days, their cases were in single digits or zero. And so because of that, people saw the risk of getting COVID as not enough to overcome their desire to resist the government. And so people often would refuse the vaccine simply out of resistance because Hong Kong has a relatively high scientific literacy rate. And so most of these people that I knew resisted the vaccine because they didn't want to participate in something the government was ordering them to do. So it started out as being quite low. So then something extraordinary happened. It's almost like the vaccine hesitancy evaporated and Hong Kong has one of the highest vaccine coverage rates in the world. Yeah, so the the current vaccine rate, I believe, is anywhere between 87 and 90%. And there are a myriad of reasons for this. The first being we eventually got lots of cases. You know, lockdowns can't hold off the virus forever with new variants emerging all the time. And so we got into the thousands of cases per day where the risk of getting COVID began to outweigh the desire of people to resist the government. But also, people decided that the vaccine was important to protect the community. And the community is one of the values that, uh, especially in East Asia, that is widely prioritized among the population. Like from the start of the pandemic, Hong Kong, mask wearing was widespread um, because masks don't protect you, they protect other people from you. So people wanted to protect their loved ones. But also even before COVID, people would wear masks even if they had a common cold and came to school. And that just showed how important Hong Kong valued protecting the wider society. And so vaccines became part of that when case numbers started to rise. So people started taking it and it sort of exponentially rose from there. Hence the high vaccine coverage that we see today, which is great to see. So Maya, there's so much in there. What are the most salient things that hit you about Aaron's account? The things that really stand out to me from this account from Hong Kong, thank you so much for sharing that, Aaron, is the way that general trust in government and social structures influence opinions about vaccines. So this goes against the common thinking that people who don't vaccinate somehow don't understand the science or have some kind of cognitive break that keeps them from doing the right thing. Instead, there's lots of social science research, not just in Hong Kong, but in many countries pre-COVID and during COVID, showing that a person's trust in government, especially government dealing with a crisis, is largely correlated with your likelihood to get vaccinated. To me, that doesn't sound so unusual. You have to trust the system that brings you vaccines in order to be willing to participate in it. It's not about understanding science, but it's about trusting the scientific and regulatory process that is bringing us vaccines and telling us that it's safe and effective and something that we should do. If you don't trust the system, you're not going to trust the vaccine. Maria? 
I fully agree with your take on trust and how trust in public agencies is really important. And I've seen this a lot as a journalist from our readers' reactions to some of the articles as well. But I have a friend who happens to be from Italy. As we know, throughout the initial phases of the pandemic, restrictions in Italy were very strict indeed. And this is a person who also was unsure about taking a COVID vaccine to begin with. And they are particularly unhappy about the very term vaccine hesitancy because they think that the term itself is actually pointing the finger at people who are worried about the vaccine and saying, well, you're wrong and you're putting the rest of us at risk and why are you like this? And so this person actually rejects that term entirely, which I found very interesting. So I don't know if you have any thoughts on that. Uh, that's uh, such an interesting anecdote. I've had that same experience pushed back against the term vaccine hesitancy. And that says something about how uh, terms evolve through their usage. So I was working on this book and this research on vaccine hesitancy since about 2016. I did work on pediatric vaccine hesitancy. So parents that didn't want to vaccinate their kids against measles, mumps, rubella, and the other childhood vaccines. And that was not a common term. I usually had to define it when people would say, what do you work on? Vaccine hesitancy, they'd say, oh, you mean anti-vax or something like that. So as a research term, the way it was used prior to COVID, it was really just used by public health researchers. It just meant you don't feel good about vaccines. And it didn't need to ascribe any sort of evaluation of whether you're right or wrong, whether you have good reasons. It was only when it started being used in public conversation that it started to pick that up. So there were serious political complaints about the use of the term when, let's say, there wasn't enough access of vaccines to marginalized groups. And politicians would say, well, they're just vaccine hesitant. And people from within those communities would say, well, that's lazy use of the term. We have an access problem. We don't have a vaccine hesitancy problem. And they're using that as a slide for not taking responsibility for the lack of infrastructure, for the lack of supports for people who are not you know, fully integrated into the system. Aaron. So when it comes to sort of trusting the system, as you say, it's interesting because there's lots of research on ethnic minorities and marginalized groups not trusting the vaccine because of bad experiences within their community in the past. Why would I take something that's being pushed to me by the same system that I was oppressed by or my community was oppressed by in the past? So I definitely get the lazy use of the term, as you say, without considering all context that goes into it. And also, I feel like it's also more of a spectrum than just you're either pro or anti-vax. There's so much in between. And there are so many reasons why someone may be doubting the vaccine. And some, like, you know, scientists that go on TV and communicate, try and, you know, get people to take the vaccine, they usually cite education as the primary way to solve the problem when it's more like a two way discussion about the context behind their feelings towards the vaccine that needs to be had. So I definitely, I definitely see where you're coming from. I've also seen a lot of health equity research that talks about how certain communities that were historically victims to eugenics or health experimentation are, of course, now a lot more worried about new vaccines, but also they don't really have that trust in health authorities just through the lens of having been discriminated against for so long. So, Maya, yeah, a, a lot of feeling there about historically marginalised groups. What's your take on that and how important it is? 
I think that's a major driver of vaccine hesitancy. I think it was like that before COVID, but it somehow became more visible to the public. So I remember near the beginning of COVID, they had done a lot of survey research. When the COVID vaccines become available, will you get vaccinated? And it was treated as a surprise that marginalized groups who were suffering the most from COVID, the people that uh, couldn't work from home, lived in housing conditions that wasn't conducive to social distancing, were the least likely to get vaccinated. And I remember that, you know, New York Times kind of headlines that this was treated as shock because surely it would make sense for the people who are most at risk to want the vaccine. And it shouldn't have been treated as a shock because I think the knowledge about mistrust of healthcare and government among marginalized communities was already there. It's just that the links hadn't been made between healthcare decision-making and uh, experiences of marginalization. Aaron? Yeah, it's really interesting to consider the different reasons behind people being vaccine hesitant and how sometimes they can be overlooked by, you know, health officials and government officials and stuff like that. So Maya, let me come back to you. Was there anything else in Aaron's story about Hong Kong that really struck home with you? What stood out in Aaron's account was the uh, sense of community, responsibility towards others. And I know that countries affected by SARS, you know, less than two decades ago, had adopted mask cultures around illness. So masking was already common in some Pacific Rim countries. And because of that, it wasn't a big stretch to ask people to mask up while you saw huge resistance in parts of Western Europe, in the United States, less so in Canada, but it wasn't, I wouldn't say that people were neutral on masking. It it became such a divisive point because to some, it seemed like a very small ask to protect other people, perhaps to protect yourself, we weren't even sure, um, while others saw that as a huge overstep what struck me was how vaccine hesitancy is fluid. So it can change and it's not fixed in the way that vaccine refusal, which is something that happens, whereas vaccine hesitancy is more, more of an attitude, a, an approach. And there seem to be very complex reasons behind it. But I just want to backtrack and kind of just delve into this idea that we've touched on very briefly, that a lot of people think that the answer is to give people more information or they've just misunderstood it and they need more scientific understanding. So Maya, can you take us through whether you agree with that, which I think I know and read your book, you don't. Um, but really, what are the main issues around that model of let's just educate people a bit more? That model of let's just educate people has a name for it in the science communications research literature, and that's called the knowledge deficit model. And that is a problematic assumption that if the public doesn't agree with expert advice, it must be because they're missing something. There's some gap in their understanding. So how do you fill that gap? Well, you do it with education and knowledge. And that's where the public health practice of information pamphlets and websites and the like come from. Now, there's nothing wrong with providing accurate information. Most of us need it. We also know that there's a lot of misinformation out there. However, it's not just the cognitive work that's happening there about do you believe the information, do you not? But there's also the broader social and historical context 
which provides, you know, affective reaction or emotional reactions to the knowledge that you get. Uh, Things you hear from trusted neighbors or friends can have equal or even more weight than what you hear from the experts. So this is all to say that there's a lot going on when we incorporate scientific information into our understanding of things, and it far exceeds what can be offered on that kind of pamphlet. So we know that the information model works only minimally. We know this because we've been working hard to get people to vaccinate their children or to vaccinate against influenza for decades. And there's been periods where there's been lots of resources and money put into these efforts. And it's been seen that it doesn't really change the dial on vaccine hesitancy very much. Some people benefit from new information, but that doesn't mean that changes their feeling about vaccines. And we find that vaccine refusal stays put, the sort of number of people who completely refuse vaccines. And vaccine hesitancy, as you said, Hillary, is more fluid, but it doesn't seem to be corrected by information provision. We would have seen an impact by now, and we don't see it, which is to say that there's other things that need to be addressed besides provision of accurate information. So let me take a like a flip side of that. So providing good information has a minimal effect, but what about stopping deliberate misinformation? So I've just been following the Alex Jones trial. So for people who don't know, he's a, a social influencer in America who brought conspiracy theories about the Sandy Hook massacre being a hoax. And he brought that into the mainstream and his income went up as a result. Aaron, you've been looking into deliberate misinformation and vaccine hesitancy. I'll come back to you later, Maya, on your take on this. But what have you been finding out, Aaron? So I was reading about, you know, misinformation on social media platforms and where it comes from and who sort of puts it out. And there was an interesting study done by the Center for Countering uh, Digital Hate or the CCDH that found that the majority of misinformation across social media came from 12 people. 12 people. Extraordinary. Which is insane, and they, like they were, they were aptly named the disinformation dozen, which is the worst donor order imaginable. Basically, the most interesting stat for me is they were solely responsible for seventy three percent of all vaccine misinformation on Facebook during COVID, which is so interesting because you see millions of people engaging with this stuff. To do my own investigations last year, I actually joined an anti vax group just to see what they were saying. Because I feel like the key to understanding is first just trying to hear what they're saying, like with the minimal prejudice as possible, just trying to listen in. And obviously the same talking points are being repeated by everybody. So I guess it stands somewhat to reason that the misinformation all comes from a quite narrow range of sources. So Maya, where does that fit into your central thesis about lack of trust? Well, the question is, what is it that is so compelling about these misinformants and disinformants is what Aaron was describing. So Alex Jones is a great example of that. He's well known in America and he really his position on everything is the system is broken. And that, for some reason, resonates with a lot of people, a lot of people who have experience of you know, the system fails them. The American dream is not something that they feel is within reach for them. So we need to look at the sort of social structures that create this level of dissatisfaction. And they get people like Alex Jones, who becomes a mouthpiece for those people. And people love him for that. And they will tweet and retweet anything that he says. 
They don't check because they may not even care if it's true. It just fits with a broader narrative that they find compelling. And we, we see bits of this in, in these sort of the disinformation dozen. And uh, we see this happening in populist movements throughout Europe over the past few years. Trump capitalized on this too and became president of the United States. So it, it never needs to be very detailed. So I look at all the time spent debunking the myths being propagated by these disinformants. And it's almost beside the point. It's not that we should let this, this information linger that, you know, let's say vaccines cause infertility or, or, or things that are, are known not to be true. They can be harmful and they might affect people's personal judgment. But the point is, it's just going to move from one to another. You shut down one source, another one will open up because there's an appetite for it. You debunk one myth, it's okay. Another one will, will pop up in its place because people are looking for that kind of outlet, that feeling... And conspiracy theories are a way to package that kind of bad feeling into something that makes sense to them. So you're saying that so this idea about I do my own research, I'm not trusting experts anymore. You are saying that it's okay to leave that disinformation online? Probably not. As far as I know, leaving it online is not a good thing to do. However, I do question why the bulk of science communications and health outreach are focused on myth busting right now, because I think it's going to be like a whack-a-mole type of situation where you debunk one, but then another one comes up or the, the impact's already been had. So the after the fact correction from scientists isn't going to have the impact that that first breathtaking misinformation stream had on people. So I have this desire to instead of directly deal with that, but let's actually step back and think, what is it that makes people feel so disinclined to trust public health, to trust this sort of infrastructure that's meant to keep people safe and, and protect their well-being? What about that fell apart such that the conspiracy theories seem to make more sense to people than the actual scientific information? Is there not, for some people, something really simple, like that they're afraid of needles? I mean, I read that one in 10 people in America are concerned and afraid of needles. And it is, it's a devastating phobia. It's one of the three phobias that make you faint. So is that something that we ought to be picking up? Do you know, the reason I'm, I bring that up is that the needle was so small just that piece of information might help some people. What, what do you think on that? Is that just too simplistic? It is a real problem. And when people are making healthcare decisions, they're bringing in a lot of considerations. Well, this might be helpful because I can go to the gym again. This might not. They're stacking all the pros and cons against. And the, the needle might be one of them working against their, let's say you're unsure about this vaccine. Maybe it's for your child. You don't know if your child needs it and you're afraid of needles. So you're just building up a case against vaccination. So it, of course, would be helpful if we could manage that a little bit better. I'm not sure if we'll ever have a nasal spray, but even if we can't do that, there has been small pilot studies of vaccination sites for people with needle phobia where they do things to help people through it, don't rush them through, help them feel calm do whatever needs to be done to make it a less traumatic experience. And that goes a long way. 
And that sounds amazing. Myself and Maria, we interviewed someone who is a super donor. So we did something on blood transfusion. And he's given how many? At least hundreds. It was a lot of... A lot of blood. And um, he admitted to being phobic of needles. It was extraordinary. <laughs> but he just, his, his passion for doing this was so great that it was just so inspiring. That sort of reminds me of like, you know, people prioritizing the for and against getting the vaccine. Because like, obviously for him, his passion for giving blood was enough to overcome his phobia of needles. In Hong Kong, the passion for resisting the government was enough to overcome the desire to get the vaccine. And so it's just interesting, like people sort of weigh it up in their head and whichever one comes out on top is the action they'll take. And I think sometimes it's not that they don't understand vaccines or they don't know that it'll help them. It's just their priorities as well, like when it comes to their for and against reasons to get it. So it's interesting to consider. And the last thing I wanted to say is I, I love that there are like phobia friendly centers for people who to get vaccinated. I guess the widespread acknowledgement of that problem would just help people, people with phobias feel more, more heard, more included. I mean, it's not under their conscious control. It's an automatic response to blood, pain and needles. It's true. Uh, I myself have it. Oh, Maria, I didn't know. I mean, I'm I'm not consciously scared of needles, but every single time I go to get vaccinated, I faint or almost faint as soon as I get that vaccine. And I know it's going to happen. And by the way, for any listeners who are also scared of vaccines, um, I do have a feature on the Medical News Today website, how to cope with vaccine anxiety, which I hope is going to help those of us who don't have access to those specialized vaccination centers where people are fully aware of the risks. But it's what Aaron is saying as well. You know, it's also about motivation. For me, the fear of getting severe COVID was a lot worse than the fear of needles. And I know, you know, it's a momentary discomfort. I might feel faint for five minutes, but after that, I feel more safe and secure. And I think it's that sort of spirit that we need to be able to communicate. This seems like a good moment to start thinking about solutions. Why is it complex? <laughs> you know, we've got different places, customs, there are people's own history, how science and misinformation of science are communicated and regulated. So I'm going to ask all of you what you think the answers are. So how do we rebuild trust? How do we encourage respectful and constructive conversations between people about vaccines? Maya, can I start with you on that? Well, there's been good research demonstrating that the way to talk to people about vaccines is, first of all, not to try to convince them otherwise and not to ply them with the facts. And a lot of this uh, research has been directed at healthcare providers who are often the ones having these conversations with patients. But I think it also applies to people having conversations with friends or family members who they know, let's say, think COVID is a hoax or don't want to get vaccinated. A sympathetic approach is what works. You have to hear them out, listen to what they have to say, try not to be judgmental about it. That is hard to do sometimes because we're all kind of tired and would like things to go a little easier. But the best thing to do is listen to what they have to say, respond not with the not with the fact-based approach, but you know, ask more questions and try to find out where the source of, of the misgivings come. There might be concrete pieces of misinformation. Perhaps you can deal with that, but it needs to be done in a respectful way, the same way 
you would want to be spoken to by someone who disagrees with you, try to meet them on common ground. I've heard suggestions that you have to find shared values, something like we all want to protect our family. That's something we can perhaps agree on. And by saying that you're finding that common ground, you're also uh, recognizing their humanity, that they're not stupid or somehow alien to you. And from there, try to build up. And it's not necessarily going to convince them that your position is right, but it might break down some of the resistance. And what's your take on coercion in terms of vaccine mandates, um, use of vaccine passports, a requirement for people in particular jobs to have the vaccine? Vaccine requirements need to be compatible with the thing that we are trying to do. So vaccine mandates have a long history. We have a history of them being overused and abused, like uh, vaccinating people at gunpoint or imprisoning people during smallpox outbreaks. We also have stories about vaccine mandates working very well. Things like introducing school vaccination programs during mild measles outbreaks in the 1980s. And so this is where I live in Ontario, where it, it was treated as a thing to do to keep children safe. It wasn't punitive. There were exemptions provided for parents that were strongly against it. And we do have a history of mandates being introduced without that sort of explosive response. And that's a sign of success. And we need to reproduce that. Hmm. Aaron, can I come to you about you know, what you think the answers are, particularly given your experience in Hong Kong, where vaccine mandates were part of what actually increased the vaccine coverage? Yeah. So to elaborate, we had what Maya described sort of like the coercion where we couldn't, for example, enter restaurants or gyms or bars without a double vaccinated pass that we were given. And it did increase the vaccine rate, but it didn't do anything to repair the trust between citizens and the government because it was sort of done out of necessity and fear as opposed to, you know, sharing any sort of values with government officials and their plan for success in COVID. And I, I, I agree with Maya. I think the most important thing is to find common ground, to find shared values, understand people, uh, understand them as people, as opposed to just statistics, like, you know, understand historical contexts empathize. I think I think empathy and satisfaction sometimes can severely lack. I think during COVID, often I would see government officials in the US and the UK go on TV and talk about why it's important to get vaccinated without connecting on any emotional level to people. And Maria? I think there's a short-term approach to this and a long-term approach to this. And the short-term approach to this, I fully agree with everything that's been said before. I think empathy and communication is key. It's important to listen to people and what their worries actually are, because their worries are legitimate. You know, people are worried about, are they going to be able to get pregnant or maintain that pregnancy if they have a vaccine or what's going to happen with all of this mRNA stuff? Or sometimes maybe they see all of these scaremongering headlines about some side effects such as blood clots, and they might not realize that in perspective, those side effects are extremely rare. It's incredibly unlikely that they're going to get them, uh, but it seems very scary. So I think it is important to listen and it is important to communicate with empathy and with openness. And to me, that's kind of the immediate approach. But I also think in the long term, it's very important to go to the root of some of these issues, which in, in my point of view is systemic inequity and systemic discrimination that a lot of people and a lot of groups have encountered and continue to encounter. And I think that's 
all of our jobs um, to tackle to the best of our ability within our spheres of influence. Because until we manage to restore that good relationship between each and every member of society and you know healthcare providers and public health experts, then it will be very difficult, I think, to fully restore the trust. Agreed. Professor Maya Goldenberg, Maria Kahoot, and Aaron Kemchandani, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks so much. Thank you, Hilary. Thanks, Hilary. And of course, thank you for listening. You can read more about vaccine hesitancy, vaccine anxiety, and more on our website. That's medicalnewstoday.com. We'll be in conversation again at the end of September with a discussion on chronic pain. I'm Dr. Hilary Geit, and this is a High Vis Radio production for Medical News Today.